The reading this morning is Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of their heart, those greedy for gain curse and renounce the Lord. In the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. Their ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of their sight. As for their foes, they scoff at them. They think in their heart, we shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, we shall not meet adversity. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under their tongues are mischief and iniquity. They sit in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. They murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion in its covert. They lurk that they might seize the poor. They seize the poor and drag them off in their net. They stoop, they crouch, and the helpless fall by their might. They think in their heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Rise up, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why do the wicked renounce God and say in their hearts, you will not call us to account? But you do see, indeed you note trouble and grief, that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoers. Seek out their wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations shall perish from his land. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth, may terrify no more. This is the word of God. Um, so today we have the pleasure of walking Jeff with his family. Um, he's come here uh, with his wife Shelley and uh, daughter Evie, son Abram, uh, and uh, they live here on the coast, so it's great we welcome you here this morning. Um, Jeff is... Uh, is, as I say, the CEO of uh, International Justice Mission Australia at the current time. Um, and Jeff has also served in marketing, strategy and leadership roles uh, in commercial and not-for-profit organisations. He actually served with compassion for around 10 years and he knows Matt up the back there, so like coming home here this morning. Um, his, his growing passion is the spiritual formation of leaders, their families and ministries, to see them function with courage, compassion and resilience. And so... We welcome you here this morning. Jeff, we're excited to hear about 
what the work that God is doing through IJM. We look forward to hearing how we can be a part of that great work. So thank you. Thanks, Ross. Am I on? Can you hear me? Uh, thank you so much for the welcome this morning. Uh, just even seeing the bulletin and the care that was taken to represent IJM in the bulletin and provide the prayer points and the hospitality this morning, we just know that we're among friends. So thank you so much. It's a real joy. Uh, I want to start off with two warnings. And the first is a content warning. And I'm not going to be unnecessarily graphic with the things that I'm going to share, but by their very nature, there's some concerning things um, in what I'm going to be speaking about. That's the first warning. The second warning is that I know that there are a number of you who already support the work of, of IJM, and, and thank you. But my warning is, is that I'm going to ask for your support again today financially. And I'm going to do that at the end of the message, and I don't want that to be awkward for me. I don't want that to be awkward for you, so I'll let you know that now that I'm going to do that. Any transaction that you make in terms of giving financially to the work of IJM should be a transaction between you and God, not one between you and me. So if I put that out there now, then you can be conscious of his leading over the next 20 or 30 minutes or so. Is that okay? So, look, I'm something of an outsider to IJM, and I'm an outsider for two reasons. And the first is that International Justice Mission, um, just by the virtue of its work, tends to attract people from the legal community. And I do not have a legal background. So my background is in aid and development and, and in mission. So I'm a bit of an outsider in that regard. The second reason why I'm an outsider is that my role as chief executive is an interim role. Uh, for the next year or so, while the founding chief executive, Amber Hawkes, is on maternity leave. So you see, I'm, I'm on the inside, but I'm something of an outsider. And if you've ever been in that position before, you know that that can be a, a little bit awkward. But as difficult as that is, to be an outsider on the inside, that's always a place of learning. It's always a place of, of opportunity and unique perspective to be an outsider on the inside. As Ross said, I had 10 years with Compassion Australia before this current assignment, and in my last three or four years with Compassion, for some reason, the Lord would continue to put me in situations of violence in the developing world. And it was always domestic violence, uh, different degrees, different circumstances, always with a male perpetrator, and always generating the same emotional response within me. Is it not enough? You know? Is it not enough that this is the circumstance in which this family is living? In the dirt, in the smell, in that crushing lack of everything. Is it not enough? In 2002, uh, 2011, I was visiting a, fa a family in their tiny little home in Jakarta, and this is their home. That's the extent of the home. And the children in this family, they were registered in Compassion's program, and that meant that they were known, that they were loved, that they had the opportunity to go to school uh, to ensure that they had adequate nutrition, medical attention, and so on. 
But while we were visiting this home, the lady, while she was standing next to her husband, she bravely and desperately placed this crumpled piece of paper into my hand, just sort of secretly. And I've still got this piece of paper. And in Bahasa, it simply read, please help us. My husband is a violent man. Is it not enough? This man, who, who I'm praying for by this time, this man, who should be the provider, is actually one who is robbing and stealing. This man, whose hand should be a symbol of protection and affection, is simply an instrument of violence. Is it not enough? See, I came face to face with the limits of an absolutely outstanding Christian development organisation. And I prayed for a man of violence, and much to my frustration, what I experienced was Christ's boundless love for him. But except for a welcome miracle, the violence would continue tomorrow. So now from my perspective as an IJM insider, I can clearly see the issue for what it is, and it's impunity. People inflict violence because they can because they get away with it, because they're not held to account. And aid and development organisations, as necessary as they are, they will not fix this. They may advocate, they may educate, and they must, but it's not their role to enforce the law. And so the violence carries on. So I clearly see now this connection between violence and poverty, And you see, when you ride the razor's edge between the inside and the outside, that's when you can build bridges and see new connections, and that can change everything. So IJM as a whole is something of an outsider to this whole aid and development effort, yet it occupies common ground in pursuing justice for the poor. And riding this razor for the last 17 years, IJM has exposed this inexorable connection between poverty and violence. See, we live in a world where two billion people live on less than $2 a day. And despite trillions of dollars in relief and development efforts over the last 30 years, that number has remained virtually unchanged. So how can this be? Well, there are lots of reasons. But the factor that we're seeing emergence seeing emerges this idea of everyday violence. Now, there are many kinds of violence that spring to mind. War, genocide, civil unrest. This is not what I'm referring to. Everyday everyday violence is far less obvious. And it's the hidden plague that's quietly devastating the hopes of the poor. You know, the alleviation of poverty is probably the largest, longest-running, most expensive global project in history. But unless we act to address everyday violence, then decades of investment will continue to be undercut. So I want to give you something of an idea of scale, and I'm just going to look at two forms of everyday violence. And the first is gender-based violence. Now, the World Health Organization has found that worldwide... Gender-based violence kills and disables more women 
between the ages of 15 and 44 than cancer, car accidents, war and malaria combined. Just let that sink in for a moment. So malaria on its own takes 700 million lives every year. In India, an average of 22 people die every hour from car accidents. The second kind of violence I'll touch on is forced labour slavery. And the Global Slavery Index released in 2013 suggested that there are up to 36 million people in slavery today. Now, that's more than any time in human history. And to put that in perspective, that entire 400-year history of the transatlantic slave trade accounted for 12.5 million people. The trafficking of humans is the fastest growing and the second most lucrative criminal activity in the world today, just behind drugs, just ahead of dealing with arms. It's worth more than $150 billion US every year, and 80% of people who are trafficked are done so for sexual exploitation. More than two-thirds of women Nearly 50% are children. Now, if you add to these police abuse of power, property grabbing, citizenship rights abuse, then you start to get a picture of this large and complex problem of everyday violence, and you also start to piece together IJM's portfolio of work. We call this plague the locust effect because of the way that it has the power just to wipe out so much of our efforts to assist the poor. You see, the new medical clinic is of no use to the slave who cannot get out of their compound to go and visit. The new schoolhouse is of no use to the girl who can't walk there without threat of being raped or trafficked to a brothel. The microloan for the new sewing machine is of little use if the police simply steal the proceeds of the new business. And the seeds and the farm tools are of no use to the widow who has just been thrown off her land. While these things are entirely necessary, the medical clinics, the schoolhouses, the microloans, the farm tools, they don't stop the violence. They're necessary, but they're not sufficient. See, we've operated under this assumption that crime and violence are a product of poverty, and if we reduce poverty, then we will also reduce violence. But it turns out, unsurprisingly, that violence is actually a product of humanity. And its prevalence is governed more by values, by penalties, and by consequences than by absolute wealth. And you know, what's interesting is that these issues of violence that I've outlined, they are actually all against the law. So in India, for example, we know that there are around 17 million slaves in India alone, but it's been illegal there for 200 years. The problem is not that the law don't get laws. The problem is that the poor don't get law enforcement. That slave owner in India is statistically more likely to be struck by lightning than go to jail. 
the violent sexual predator in Bolivia has more chance of slipping and dying in the bathtub than being convicted of his crime. So what we know, and we know this intuitively and we know it empirically, that when there's a complete absence of law enforcement, the bad guys just act with impunity. Violent people oppress the poor because they can. And what's becoming obvious now after 50 years and $3 trillion worth of poverty alleviation investment is that we've skipped a step. We failed to build a platform of basic law enforcement in poor communities that allow the poor just to hang on to the benefit of aid and development. We failed to deliver a level of public safety that allow the poor just to rise above that chronic daily fear and even contemplate a better tomorrow. Our poverty alleviation efforts have been striving forward with the handbrake on. And the locusts of violence devour our gains with great efficiency and with great wickedness. And there are many organisations advocating loudly against slavery, loudly against sexual exploitation of children, and they must do this. But without law enforcement, the poor are not protected from violence. And so our question becomes, how will our massive development investments deliver a return while ever four billion of the world's people effectively live outside of the protection of the law. I want to bring this down to an individual story and away from these great big numbers. And I'll tell you a story about, about a girl. Her name is Josie and she lives in the Philippines. And she was growing up in rural Philippines and hers is one of those tragic tales where the protagonist can just never catch a break. And from a young age, she was systematically abused by her mother and then by her older brother. And longing to escape, she convinced her mother just to let her make her own way in the world. So she left home. But in the economy of rural Philippines, she just couldn't earn enough money to support herself. And so she moved to the city. She moved to Cebu, the second largest metro area in the Philippines. She was 17 at the time. So when she arrived in Cebu, her first priority was to find somewhere to live. And so she headed for the poorest part of town to look for a boarding house where she might stay. And on the street, she met a woman. And this woman told her that she could find her both a job and a place to stay. And so the woman took Josie to a karaoke bar. And she talked to the bar's owners for a few minutes. And the bar owners gave her some money. And then the woman disappeared. And Josie thought that this was strange, but... She, she wasn't alarmed. The bar was owned by a married couple and they met with Josie and they said that she would make good wages and she would have a free place to stay. And they said that her primary duty would be to entertain customers. And so she thought this would mean that she would be a waitress. Now, it was her first customer that explained what that really meant. And her first night on the job, the couple sent Josie out with a foreign male customer who took Josie back to his room and he told her that she was there to have sex with him. And quite confused, she said that she did not want to have sex with him but he told her that she didn't have a choice. 
So after several nights of this, Josie told the couple that she was done. And there must have been some sort of misunderstanding. This is not what she came there to do. Uh, She doesn't like serving men as a sex worker and she was happy to wait tables, but she would like to no longer have sex with customers, a reasonable request. Her owners didn't take the information well. And so they beat her up and from that moment on they kept Josie under constant guard. They continued to hit her on a regular basis just to remind her of who is in control now. And so Josie began to resign herself to her new normal. She was raped almost every night and on some nights she was forced to entertain as many as seven customers and once one of her customers pulled a loaded gun and threatened to kill her when she tried to collect the money that he owed. She would try to get her customers to use a condom but they didn't want to and she knew who held all of the power. If a customer wanted her to stay longer than the standard two hours and then she tried to collect the extra money that he owed and she wasn't able to, then of course she would be beat by her owners on her return to the bar. But on April 14, 2011, and maybe for the first time in her life, Josie caught a break. And it seemed like an ordinary day. And she was selected and taken away by a typical looking customer. But this time the customer was a cop. And he was working, he was working undercover on an operation to rescue Josie and to bring her owners to justice. So she was rescued as part of a program that IJM launched in Cebu in 2006, and it was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It was called Project Lantern. This was IJM's most aggressive attempt to fix the parts, the broken parts, of an entire public justice system. Now, to monitor the effects of the program, IJM commissioned a study that measured the availability of minors offered for commercial sex at the start of the program in 2006, then again in 2008, and at the end of the program in 2010. And we set what we thought was an aggressive target for the program. We thought that if we did our job really, really well, that we might see a 20% reduction in children available for commercial sex. But the findings were outstanding. After four years, we found that 79% were simply no longer there. Nearly 80% fewer minors available for commercial sex in metropolitan Cebu after only four years. They were no longer even entering the industry. So what happened? Well, the non-functioning machinery of the public justice system in Cebu had begun to turn. And as a critical piece of the program, IJM worked with the Philippines National Police and we commissioned a dedicated law enforcement unit focused on combating sex trafficking. And it was christened the Regional Anti-Trafficking Task Force affectionately coined the Rat Force. Now, IGM trained and mentored these officers over several years, and it was the mentoring that proved to be the critical step. It turns out that it's reasonably straightforward to provide really good law enforcement training, but unless you actually have somebody to walk with these officers day after day, case after case, and provide real-time feedback, then that training is relatively ineffective. 
Today, the rat force functions as an independent, motivated, well-equipped and effective law enforcement unit to the point where it is being replicated in other provinces throughout the Philippines. Now, the Filipinos, if you, if you know many Filipinos, you might know that they're a fairly dramatic bunch. Now, we conducted uh, an interview as part of our project evaluation and a fairly animated senior Rat Force officer observed that they had sown fear among the perpetrators of sex trafficking in Cebu. He said, we have been able to instill fear across all establishments. We are their worst nightmare. You see, before our work in Cebu, brothel owners didn't go to jail for their crimes. While raping children was against the written laws of the Philippines, neither the customers nor the pimps had a reason to care. But when the machinery of the public justice system in Cebu started to turn, when the rat force started to work, when the pimps started to get arrested, when the prosecutors started prosecuting them, when the victims started testifying, when the judges started sentencing them to life in prison, that was the moment when it actually became illegal to sell children for sex in Cebu. Since Project Lantern, well over 675 victims of sexual exploitation have been rescued. 175 of them are in aftercare at the moment and there have been more, more than 220 arrests in Cebu alone. Let me provide something of an overview of IJM's model. Firstly, what are we even talking about when we refer to the public justice system. This might be hard to see, but think of it like this, like a pipeline where all the major components link up and injustice goes in at one end and justice comes out the other. And there are four main components to that pipeline. And the first is a police force where they're reasonably well-trained and capable and they're able to effectively investigate crime and enforce the law. And then there are prosecutors who are also well-trained and competent, who are able to work alongside law enforcement and who actually prosecute criminals. And then there are judges who are not corrupt, but who are trained, who understand the law, who are able to appropriately, appropriately sentence criminals for their crimes. And it includes trained and effective social workers with enough capacity to help restore victims of violent crimes. Now, while not perfect, the Australian justice system is an example that fundamentally works. And the interesting thing is, is the justice system can work in the developing world as well, if you can pay. But that's not the point, is it? It's not public. It's certainly not just. For the poor, the justice system looks more like this marked by corruption, it's marked by a lack of resources, inadequate training, and for those that are desperately trying to do a, God, a good job, they are chronically overworked. 
And what we have found time after time is that a broken, a broken justice system actually manufactures even more injustice. IJM's model of justice system transformation seeks to work with local authorities to repair and to strengthen this pipeline, and it does this across four areas. And the first, obviously, is we work to rescue the victims of violent oppression. The second is that we work in that long and messy task of restoration, restoring survivors to lives of dignity and lives of opportunity. The third component is that we actually bring criminals to justice, see them sentenced and convicted for their crimes. And the fourth component is we work to strengthen the entire public justice system. You see, as more and more cases are pushed through the system, then we start to understand where the breakpoints are, where the leaks are, case after case after case. We build momentum, we establish precedent, we conduct training, we demonstrate progress and we garner political will. And then as we saw in Project Lantern, a transformed justice system serves to protect the poor from violence even happening in the first place. So we do this across 18 offices and 13 countries and we assist victims of sexual violence, of forced labour slavery, property grabbing, police abuse of power and citizenship rights abuse. Now, the focus of IJM Australia's work so far has been in Cebu, in the Philippines, uh, where the casework is the commercial sexual exploitation of children. We call it CSEC for short. Now, Shelley and I were, were there with a team from Australia just in uh, last month in July. Cebu's the second largest metropolitan area in the Philippines, and it's a popular, popular tourist destination. It's famous for its beaches, it's famous for its diving, and unfortunately it's famous for its sex tourism as well. Now IJM's been incredibly successful at pushing these cases of sex trafficking through the justice system in Cebu. And you may recall two recent cases this year involving Australians, Peter Gerard Scully and Michael Ruffalo. So we're now in the final stage of this, of this particular casework type in Cebu. And the local authorities have really got some great momentum, equipping and support in their own right. And so we're at the point where we're starting to shift our focus across to the online sexual exploitation of children. And when we've begun to investigate this, it turns out that this is a very different crime indeed. They're not the same criminals. It's not the pimps gone underground. They're not the same children. These children are younger. There are more boys. We can't use the same methods of investigation. They're not the same criminals. Exploitation doesn't happen in bars. It doesn't happen in brothels. It happens in homes. And it often happens at the hands of parents and relatives catering to the demands of customers a world away. Customers who might never cross oceans to rape children, but with credit card in hand, pre commit precisely the same crime from the secrecy of their own homes. 
Customers have remotely directed shows involving children as young as 18 months. Now make no mistake, when we apply pressure to this industry in the Philippines, it's going to emerge right here in our midst. Australians are the third highest consumers in this industry in the Philippines, behind the US and South Korea. And I would much prefer that we had a reputation as being part of the solution. This push into online sexual exploitation is going to require new and sophisticated methods of investigation. It's going to require an iron will. It's going to require the full equipping of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to require the sustained support of the church. So this is where I ask you to join us in our mission to protect the poor from violence. And my invitation to you this morning is simply this. That is that you would get to know us. Get to know us. That you would read about real cases. That you would pray for real rescue operations. That you would intercede for real victims. Get to know us. And see, what I've recognised in my, my few short months with IJM is, is that we often come up with three hurdles when we invite support. And I want to call these out so that you can make eye contact with them. And the first hurdle we face is that this whole idea of justice system transformation is new in our conversation about poverty alleviation. See, we understand concepts about clean water and medical intervention. We understand education, community development. We understand sponsorship. But justice system transformation is new. The second hurdle I want to call out is working with governments and law enforcement agencies runs counter to this narrative of corruption that we've heard for years. This is why we support NGOs, right? Non-government organisations. But of course, we cannot address poverty without engaging governments. The third hurdle that I've seen is that IJM directs finances to lawyers. Well, that just seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Well, it's true. IJM employs lawyers. We employ investigators. We employ social workers. And that's how we're able to conduct rescues. That's how we're able to prosecute criminals. That's how we're able to restore survivors. And this is where the bulk of our field expenses go, is to the salaries of these professionals. The annual salary of a lawyer in Cebu is less than $25,000 a year. And this year, IJM Australia has committed to support the salaries of at least 15 staff. So I've got a table set up just out there in the foyer where you can come and talk to me about these and other things. You can sign up on one of these little forms to become uh, a prayer partner. You can maybe follow us on social media, on Facebook, or you can look at our website at ijm.org.au. Or you can also use this to sign up as a freedom partner and financially support our work in an ongoing way. There are dollar values on here, and I would ask that you ignore them. What you give is a transaction between you and God, not a piece of paper. So my invitation is that you would get to know us and that as you do, that you would partner with us in proving that justice for the poor 
really is possible. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Hard things to talk about, I imagine. Hard things to hear about. And um, we're not going to finish with a song this morning. That would seem rather inappropriate. Uh, Valerie read to us earlier from Psalm 10, and we read in verse 1, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And as we've heard some of these stories, I imagine that perhaps a response within you might be, God, where are you? Where are you in the midst of this? How on earth is this happening in a world that you made? You see, the kingdom of God knows absolutely nothing of such uh, injustice and trauma and terror. The psalmist then goes on at the end and he declares, You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. The psalmist knows that God hears the cries of the oppressed because our God does not stand for injustice. The kingdom of God knows nothing of this. So I guess the challenge for us this morning is are we prepared to be part of the answer to our prayers? IJM is a ministry, obviously, that that seeks to put legs to the prayers of God's people in response to the, the trauma and the abuse that so many people, unfortunately, suffer. So I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer. Um, I would like you to consider taking home the IJM prayer points that we've been given as an opportunity to, to pray for the work in the Philippines in Cebu that Jeff has been speaking to us about this morning. Um, but I want you to, to join with me in praying for God's kingdom to reign on earth as it does in heaven. It's a prayer that so often we pray, but what does that actually look like? And I think this morning we've had a very a challenging talk, haven't we, about, well, this is actually what it looks like. Because there's all kinds of ways and shapes and forms where God's kingdom is not reigning on this earth. And as God's people, it's our role to partner with him in, in, in seeing a more just world that's bringing God's kingdom to bear on earth. And that's why the organisation of IJM exists. And so it's a good organisation for God's people to get behind and support. I'm going to pray specifically for the justice system transformation for the police in Cebu, as Jeff has spoken to us about this morning. All of those innocent victims who have no one speaking for them, who have no voice, and then I want to pray specifically for the work and the ministry of IJM, uh, that God would give them favour and success in what they do, that God's people would get behind them and enable them uh, to continue their good work. Would you join me in that prayer? Father God, we, uh, we sit here this morning, middle class, comfortable, and, uh, and we just hear a sermon like that, we hear a talk like that, and it, uh, it's pretty confronting, God, and the reality is that 
most, if not all of us, are just so far removed from what we've just heard about. And the fact that it's in another country, even though there is so much exploitation that even occurs here on the coast that we're unaware of, it's easy for us, Lord, to turn our eyes away. And yet your word leaves us with no option but to engage. Because you called your disciples to a life of bringing your kingdom to bear here on earth. So personally, Father, I'm feeling so convicted about what my response is to seeing your kingdom reign here on earth. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would fall upon each person's heart and reveal to them, Lord, how you would like them and and each one of us, myself included, to not only pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, but to consider how am I actually being part of that. Lord, we want to thank you for the ministry of International Justice Mission, an organisation, Lord, that is seeking to bring your kingdom to bear on earth. And in particular, Lord, we want to pray for their work in Cebu, in the Philippines. Father, we want to pray that they would see the justice system transformed there, We pray for the police in Cebu that there would be just a complete overhaul, that they would start calling people to account and enforcing the law so that innocent victims are spared the trauma and the devastation that countless, countless people are experiencing. Father, we just pray for all of those innocent victims who fall prey to an unjust system. God, you know each one by name. No single person is a mistake. No single person is forgotten by you. You know and hear the plight of the afflicted. You listen to their cry. Your word tells us that you defend the fatherless and the oppressed. And we ask, God, that you would do that through your people, that you would rise up your church, that you would rise up your people to go about bringing your kingdom to bear on earth. So, Father, I just pray for the ministry of IJM that you would give them favour, that, Lord, you would give them success in what they're doing, and we thank you for uh, the fact that that is, in fact, happening, Lord, as as Jeff shared this morning, in four years, a reduction from 20 to 80%. It's, It's working. And so we just pray, God, that you would continue to further this good work that is reflecting your kingdom and help us to get involved in whatever way, Lord, we feel led to do so. Father, be with Jeff in his unique role as an outsider on the inside. Thank you for his work and for his ministry. Thank you for his willingness to come and speak to us this morning and we ask your blessing upon him and the good work that he is involved in. Lord, may we go this morning, having met with you, having been reminded of the reality of a broken and fallen world that just so desperately needs your kingdom to reign 
Help us to be kingdom-minded people, constantly seeking ways to bring your kingdom to bear in this broken and hurting world. You are a just, just God and you call us to image you by being a just people. We love you, Lord. May we go in your strength and in your peace and in your confidence, we pray. Amen. Thank you for worshipping with us this morning.